Well, good evening, guys. Here is our official number one podcast. Obviously, last week was our little prologue to say uh, we could check the levels and make sure that we uh, have something to talk about. We certainly have. And tonight, I should say, today's podcast is absolutely no different at all. Um, first of all, let's have some hellos, guys. Hello, it's uh, Steve. So, hello. Yep. Good night. It's uh, James O'Brien, and a pleasure to be here. Well, on the eve almost of Christmas. Yeah. Have you guys done all your shopping? Are we panicking? <laughs> yeah. No. Nope. Yeah. No. I've uh, I've not really done much at all. Um, I don't, I normally rely on my wife to do these things, um, and, and and at the moment she is heavily pregnant, so she's actually relying on me to do a lot of things, which I must put up my hands and say I failed miserably. Oh, um, my Lord. So, so the Christmas cards are late. Uh, I either <laughs> haven't been done yet at all, and the Christmas shopping, well, it's, it's, it's not that far down the road. But, uh, you know, worse things happen at sea, so uh, we'll see how we go in the next few days. Yeah, well, do everything online. You, you can do the Christmas cards online. I've, I've done mine. So anyway, we digress. Let's talk about Christmas and uh, this podcast. This podcast yeah. is is all about the Christmas truce and Christmas time and the meaning of that. And um, obviously in 2014, Shortlift Trust was involved in the Christmas truce event here in sort of UK and also in Belgium. Um, we were we did a lot of work with the Belgian tourist office, and and the amazing Francoise Sheepers and her team. And I'm, we must get her on. She's amazing, 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 uh, Belgium. And um, we started talking to the mayor of Commune Warrenton, um, which is near where Plug Street is and where the Christmas trees happened, and to sort of work on an interpretation there. Um, for the anniversary, 100th anniversary of Christmas trees. And we're hopefully here tonight from three people, Andrew Hamilton, um, whose grandfather, who I met in a muddy field, and no doubt we'll talk about a muddy field today. And uh, his grandfather was there and wrote Christmas trees diary, an unbelievable story. Next one, next person guest we've got on is um, the amazing, uh, he's very shy, very retiring, <laughs> um, Colonel Bob Stewart, MP for Beckenham. Um, he was in Bosnia and he organised truces and he's going to tell, hopefully, an amazing story about that. I mean, I've only heard snippets of it from him over time, but if we can get that story out, it would be absolutely huge. And then finally, we've got our last guest on, Peter Hooten from The Farm. I mean, they re-released the song. Um, we were one of the recipients of their generosity for doing that. I want to hear the story about that and how he, how he wrote it. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, as, as we've been talking before we started uh, recording, it's, um, there's loads of myths about the uh, World War I truth, so it's been good to, to um, get Andrew's perspective on it as well. And uh, to hear uh, Bob's story, obviously that brings it right up to modern times, 1990s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that that's a big one for me as well. I'm I'm really interested to hear um, Bob's story and how he negotiated that ceasefire uh, in what was a, a terrible conflict, uh, and also, of course, um, a, a Peter story as well with um, with the farm re-releasing all together now, which is of course the title of our 
of our podcast and our intro song. Um, I'm interested to hear how that um, all came together and all the stars as well, who, who, who very, very kindly um, donated their vocals to be part of something really special. Um, hopefully he's there. Uh, yes, he is. And obviously our first guest tonight is Andrew Hamilton. Andrew, hi there. How are you doing? Hi, fine. Thanks. It's been a long time. How many years? Well, it's six years since we met in a very muddy field um, watching a football memorial being unveiled. More of that later, I suspect. Well, let's first have the history of how you, why you were in that muddy field, Andrew. Let's start with that. Well, quite simply because of my grandfather, Captain Robert Hamilton's diary, which I discovered at home. Um, some time ago, I suppose, when I was teaching. I was teaching history in Hollywood. Don't get too excited. Hollywood near Birmingham. <laughs> and uh, um, I used his diary for teaching the Great War to 14-year-olds and so on. And it all went well. And many years later, my daughter was about to go on a battlefield trip uh, at her school. And I spoke to the guide and showed him my grandfather's diary. And he looked at it um, overnight, phoned me the next day, very excited. He said, this is fantastic stuff. It's a really detailed account of the Royal Warwicks during the first four months of the war. He obviously knew um, some famous people like Bernard Law Montgomery, who was in the Royal Warwicks. Uh, Bernard uh, Bruce Bairn's father, who was the celebrated cartoonist. And, of course, he said, his, your grandfather's description of the Christmas truce is absolutely wonderful. And we vowed then that we would do something about it. And eventually we wrote what, in effect, was a commentary on his diary. And um, that, I suppose, was, was how we ended up in that field together, really, through my grandfather's diary of those events from August when he uh, pitched up at Shorncliffe and ended up in, uh, near Plug Street Wood in Belgium over Christmas. And the thing about um, Saint-Yvon, where uh, we were, was that there wasn't a game of football that, that took place there. So talk about fake news. <laughs> um, there was this magnificent, huge uh, assembly and an, and an event, Michael Platini, um, from UEFA unveiled a memorial to a football match that never took place. I mean, it was, it was quite fun, really, because we were cooped up in a, a sort of tent, weren't we? Um, yeah. While all the speeches, interminable speeches went on. And I was at the back and there were a load of cameramen and uh, journalists behind me. And I'd got my grandfather's diary in my hand and I, lifted it up so they could see it, because what he wrote was um, that um, a game of football would have taken place tomorrow, but the officer concerned was relieved. So yeah, he yeah. says there was a game planned, there's no doubt about that, that he must have planned that with possibly with Lieutenant Zamish, whose account we've got. They must have said, OK, well, a game of football on Boxing Day tomorrow is a good idea. But then the whole thing fell apart. Sorry, Andrew, and... 
Who was Lieutenant Zamish? Can you just... Uh, Lieutenant just Zamish was um, an officer in the 134th Saxon uh, Regiment who right. was opposite the yep. Royal Warwicks. And okay. he would have been one of the German or Saxon officers who met Royal Warwick's officers in no man's land. Mm -hmm. And they must have... Uh, and on Christmas Day, uh, it would appear from several accounts, um, for instance, a Walter Cook... Um, or, or Private Smith said that we played football between the two lines of trenches. The Germans were interested spectators. Yeah. And Bruce Byrne's father, the cartoonist, also uh, co corroborates that. So yes. I think that there may have been a, a kickabout by, amongst the Royal Warwicks, watched by interested Saxons. And the officers who met obviously said, well, maybe we could arrange a game of football uh, tomorrow. It didn't happen, and to be honest, if it had have happened, it would have been some sort of game because no man's land was a right mess. Shell holes full of water, mud everywhere. Uh, I think there were still dead bodies, which of course were removed as part of the truce. Absolutely. Um, so yeah. it's unlikely that a, a, a game of football would, it would have been much good given the conditions. And the point I always make is that Bruce Byrne's father um, produced three or four fantastic cartoons of the truce, a barber uh, cutting the hair of a Saxon, for example, uh, a Tommy, a Bert or an Alf caught in the light of a star shell and he's been having too much of, uh, of his uh, rum jar, um, and a very good, uh, well-known um, painting of the meeting. But he didn't produce a cartoon of a football match. And believe me, yeah. if there had been a football match, Bruce Byrne's father would have been in there like a shot. Mm. So it, it all was fake news, guys, really. Uh, yeah. It didn't happen. And, and to see this memorial being unveiled was, was really I quite think, comic, I think. I think that's that you have uh, some of the problems that with um, the telling of the, the history of World War I or the story of World War I summed up straight away there this this mythology that that follows mm. it around um i mean there i mean there were instances of kickabouts and i think inter platoon kickabouts yeah uh, rob and I've, I've got one account of uh six cheshires here which is ernie williams so there was a kickabout with the with the with the germans but it was like a couple of hundred people and everybody tried to touch the ball or whatever mm. they were using, because I don't think he mentioned football. But um, well, I think they sort of used socks, didn't they? Certainly as goalposts. Yeah, it could have even used a. And they boot. wouldn't have. I don't think they'd have had a leather football out there. Um, so, but the whole thing about the Germans waiting, waiting for the penalties and going to extra time—that's a complete myth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but you would, you would think, wouldn't you, from from what you hear, that there were football games of football out, breaking out throughout the four hundred and twenty-five mile. Yeah. Um, Western Front, and it just didn't happen. There might have been one at Freilingen, apparently, but it's just become a myth. And I suppose it's a case of, you know, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story. So you get the Sainsbury's advert, which was fantastic, but then you've got the football match to finish it off. You've got the Royal Shakespeare Company did a, a very good um, play about the, the Christmas truce, but there was the, f uh, the football match, needless to say, and the penalties and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I've it's just be, it's just been perpetuated, really. I've got to be fair to to a certain extent to Taff Gillingham here because um, what he did say afterwards is that for the same as his advert that uh, he did advise him not to do the football yeah. match. 
yeah. but also he has subsequently himself investigated some of the uh, uh, information surrounding football matches and uh, he believes that he believes there was some sort of kickabout which is yeah that's acceptable um, yeah. but no organized football match as such but certainly not at saint Yvon, where, where the no 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 absolutely yeah the interesting thing about that was when we were talking about it i wanted to make sure because i think over i think about 118 men died 100, you know, on the actual well, day. i think figures vary chris because um uh depending on where you go to i mean commonwealth wargroves will be the best one to go to i think 180 plus it, it does vary but there was a lot of people um being uh killed uh uh on that that so-called day of the truce yeah, it's quite it's quite an interesting. Um, a private James Finnegan of the First East Lanks was sniped at eleven p.m. and died after midnight. And a private Rowe wrote, "What a Christmas for his wife and kiddies. Has mankind forgotten the shepherds, the magi, and the child that was born in the manger because there was no room for him in the inns of Bethlehem?" Um, so yes, you're quite right. There were instances of deaths. Um, of killings on Christmas Day. And the winter operations, um, I mean, they, they were planned for uh, around that period as well, 14th December, 21st of December, 1914. It wasn't, um, it wasn't meant to be a time of, of um, um, well, for one of better way of saying it, goodwill to all men. It was, uh, it was the middle of a war. And I think mm-hmm. arguably, well, a lot of the reasons why these guys did get up and go there was, uh, and do the, uh, take part in the truce, because they just want to see what's on the other side of the wire. It was uh, to relieve boredom. It was to, to see what happened. But, I mean, to say there was a, a football match between them is probably going a little bit too Pushing far. Yeah. Well, of course, the authorities um, were able to sort of um, justify what had happened by saying, you know, that we'd been able to look at uh, the state of their trenches and such like. But, yeah. I mean, my view is that I think that the Royal Warwicks, for example, had been route marching around um, France and ending up in Belgium. Uh, it was mobile warfare, and they were tired. You know, there, were, there was one day when the Royal Warwicks marched for 34 miles in incredibly hot conditions. And, of course, they're fighting as well. Um, and then they get to Belgium, to, to Plug Street, and, and they are tired. And the conditions were lousy in mm-hmm. December. The trenches that they dug were sort of flooded. Uh, there was mud. And, you know, these guys have been there since August and they, they wanted to go home, really, or they thought of home, uh, but they were professionals, they were regulars, so they, they carried on with it. But come Christmas, they might, when the Warwicks went down to relieve the Royal Dublin Fusiliers, they did so with a heavy heart. And mm. then the Royal Dublin Fusiliers said, well, the Germans want, want to uh, talk to you. Um, and also things have been building up in December. For example... Um, a William Tapp, who was a, a, um, a private in the Warwicks, who wrote a fantastic diary, really vivid. And he said that, um, you know, that the Germans had put things up on poles and, and we shot at them and, and mm. vice versa. And we, we, we um, roared, roared with laughter if they missed and, and they hit. So things were, um, there's a bit of fraternization starting quite early in December. And on December the 4th, General Smith Dorian said, you know, this, this is not good news and there is to be no fraternisation what, whatsoever. But there were still uh, yeah. examples of this right through to uh, 
Christmas Eve. And examples of it going the other way, I think. I've got, I've got a little note here. I, I think yeah. it's right in Clifford Lane, 1st Hertfordshire Regiment. Um, they heard the German shouting and the command for opening rapid fire was, um, this is around, around the Christmas period. They were, I can't remember what they were shouting. They were shouting across the messages and they just got a response of rapid fire from the British. So it's not all peace and, and lovey-doveyness. So I wanted to come oh, on. No, no, no. So how did, how did Captain Robert Hamilton get there? I mean, was he, was he, uh, when did he first join the Warwicks? Well, just before the war, but prior to that, he'd been with the Norfolk Regiment. Uh, when he left Glenarmon College in Scotland, I think he went straight into the Norfolks. Uh, he fought in the Boer War, so he'd certainly had experience of warfare. Um, and he then spent a lot of time in India, outpost of empire up in, up in the north in Shimla. And um, when, he, when, he, when he returned to, to England, he gave up temporarily um, army life, but was called up, you know, in, in, in 1914 and started training and then ended up in Yorkshire with training and then went down to Shorncliffe. I don't know if you remember what the diary entry is, but I remember you telling me. Can you remember? Oh, yeah, he said, he said um, got to Shorncliffe at 6pm, found the whole place a veritable pigsty. <laughs> no mess of any sort. All washing places and WCs in a filthy condition. Commandeered a clean pair of sheets. Got into my original quarters, walked into Folkestone in uniform and sat and listened to the, bag, ba uh, to the band on the front. So he wasn't terribly impressed with Sean Cliff, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> but, that, but that's, for us, I find that fascinating because obviously that was one of, that was a very prestigious um, military camp. It's right by the seaside. It's one of the posh ones. Um, their royal patronage down there and very well organized. And obviously, you've got the School of Musketry over in high. So, it, it was a, so in that time, from the start of World War One to the point he goes down there, it is absolute bedlam. So, we've established that uh, the Shorncliffe is a bit of a pigsty, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> we've established uh, that, the, uh, that the football match could have been a bit of a myth. But what are some of the things that we know actually did happen? during the Christmas truce? Because again, we come back to, again, the Sainsbury's commercial and, and a fantastic French film called uh, Joy Noël, where they're exchanging yeah. gifts and they're, you know, having cigars and all the rest of it. Did any of this stuff happen or is it just the embellishment of places like Hollywood? It's, it certainly did happen. There was, yeah. uh, 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 it's not all the way along the line, obviously, but there were <laughs> sections where fraternization did take place and there were gifts exchanged. Um, so, and there's the photographs that we have in the contemporary newspapers in January and so on in 1915 that uh, reinforce that as well. Um, but it wasn't all the way along the line. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, it certainly did happen and there's an element of truth to it. But I think where the, where the myth comes in is that it happened everywhere and that they all stopped fighting and all the sides came out and stood in no man's land and greeted each other like long lost brothers. That is completely and utterly false and did not happen. Do you think an element of the it will be over by Christmas and not getting any firm orders on the day, do you think that played a part in it? Well, I think certainly old folks like my grandfather, he wrote in his diary that this war is not going to be over by Christmas. Mm. So I think the professional soldiers knew only too well that it, it wouldn't end at Christmas, particularly once they ended up being entrenched facing each other. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And bear in mind that the professional soldiers 
by 19, the end of 1914 had taken a hell of a battering. Yeah, I mean, we'd lost a lot of NCOs, we'd lost a lot of colonels and other officers. Um, they'd taken a battering, and uh, we certainly knew it was not going to be over by Christmas. The Christmas truce happened in, in 1914. Was there a desire to repeat it in 15, 16, 17, or was there uh, something that was basically ruled against them that they couldn't do it? There were attempts to do it in 15, but nothing ever happened, as far as I'm aware. Uh, it, things had changed by then. Uh, you could certainly say, from my point of view, if you consider that in 1914, in December 1914, the Germans at that point hadn't used gas, and uh, by uh, April 1915 they were using gas. Um, and there's uh, also, uh, later on in the war, there's flamethrowers. The technology and the whole idea of total warfare and uh, uh, comes into it, and um, an industrialised warfare, and it is not the same. It is not the same. And it, it, I, I think that plays in a, uh, a considerable part uh, as to why it never occurred again. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've always thought it was a bit strange that especially if you've been there from the beginning and you're treating to that position at Christmas and you've been in the thick of it, a lot, and you've seen your, your mates shot around you, you're not going to be that, you know, well, why not just, you know, because the Germans are singing, we're just going to pop over and shake hands. Mm -hmm. I, can, I can understand people fairly new into the trenches, but if you've been in there some time, there's not going to be that bonhomie going on, and especially, again, if you're a Belgian soldier. There's still, I think, an element of curiosity in 1914 that was not there after that period. I think that... Um, of course, the, the, the um, top brass weren't terribly impressed with what happened. And Absolutely. General Smith, uh, Smith Dorian on Boxing Day apparently was seeking details of officers and units who had taken part in the truce with a view to disciplinary action. Yes. He said this only illustrative of the apathetic state we are gradually sinking into. To finish the, this war quickly, we must keep the fighting spirit and do all we can to discourage friendly intercourse. So it, that, that makes it pretty clear that uh, as far as he was concerned and other generals, it wasn't going to happen again. And it's interesting that um, my grandfather, who allowed it to happen in his, in his sector, he didn't receive any um, medals or commendations um, mentioned in dispatches, whereas a lot of the other Royal Warwick's officers that were with him did. And I my feeling is that that might be because his card was marked because he had, he had allowed the truce to happen in his sector and he ended up being the commandant of the Hereford detention barracks from 1915 onwards, which he absolutely loathed because he had to deal with uh, conscientious objectors and um, some of the Irish. Uh, so whether that was some sort of punishment or not, I don't know. But it's, an interesting, think... it's an interesting view on it, I think, isn't it? Because um, as far as I'm aware, yes, then the names were, were, were taken, etc., of uh, the officers involved, but no action was taken against them. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's an interesting thing to, to, um, to, to be told, because uh, I, I don't know if anybody's investigated that before or, or, or had reason to think that there was... Um, a common theme about officers who'd been in, 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 in the involved in the truce in 1914. Andrew, your your grandfather brought a great deal of humanity, I guess, to the front line on Christmas Day in 1914. And you mentioned there uh, moving into to 1915. Does his story have a happy ending? He he, he survived the great conflict. Yeah, he survived. He was he was put on um, less strenuous duties, I suppose, but he he, he was um, suffered 
badly from from um, hearing loss and so on because of all the shells, I suppose, and and, and the uh, damp and so on. So he he ended up training um, soldiers on the Isle of Wight, I think, and then he ended up at the Hereford detention barracks. But it's quite interesting, I think, that he, for example, wrote, I'm told the general and staff are furious, but they're powerless to stop it. And the troops like Private Tapp said, I don't know what our general uh, would say if he knew about this. So those who took part in the truce realized that there could be some ramifications. Uh, after all, you know, um, they're, they're at war and here they are fraternizing. So um, it's, it's all, all very interesting, I think. And also the official reaction, what was in the war diaries, the, the battalion war diary for the first Royal Warwicks for Christmas Eve said, says it was a quiet day, relieved the Royal Dublin Fusiliers in the trenches in the evening. That's all yeah. it says. Yeah, and I think the there's a... The war diary sort of says, well, you know, the Germans appear to think that an armistice exists for Christmas Day. Good heavens. You know, mm -hmm. uh, formal interchange of courtesies. Um, but this is a key point, as somebody, one of you mentioned earlier, some valuable information was gleaned during the intercourse. Mm. The trenches seem fairly strongly held, the enemy cheerful and well fed. So mm. they sort of see it, they, they justify it as being a bit of a sort of intelligence exercise, I suppose. Yeah, it does sound a little bit of, oops, let's see how we can spin this and, and not yeah. come with that. But. Uh, there, there was a lot of information. Yeah, I can't remember. I, I found there's uh, there's one where they described the. I think again it was the Saxon regiments who uh, uh, how big they were and well fed they were and tall guys and even they estimated their age bracket as well. So I suppose yes, there was information gleaned in that respect. Um, so to put a spin, like you say, Chris, to put a spin on um, how this happened and and take it away so much from the fraternisation. So what happened to the rest of them? Because obviously Monty. We, we know, he came back to Shawcliffe in the 1920s and ran his trench warfare school there. Obviously, and then he came back again to Shawcliffe, World War II. Um, so what happened to the rest of them, the rest of the officers? Were they, did they all survive? Did his friends survive? Yeah, a lot of them did. And they, they carried on um, and a number of them got killed in April 1915. In the, I think it was the second bat battle of Ypres when the Germans used gas for the first time, and there's a number of, there's a lot of Warwick, Warwick's names on the Menin Gate, many of whom died in 1915. Some of them did survive. Certainly, Bruce Byrne's father did, um, and continued churning out his cartoons. Although I, I feel the sort of standard of them um, went down a bit as time went on. His his cartoons in November and December 1914 really are wonderful, I think, in capturing the British Tommy based on stories that uh, the officers like my grandfather swapped in the um, estaminets behind the lines. Andrew, again, just thank you for coming up and talking about that. It's, it is going to be one of those moments in not only World War One history, but I think in our national history and, and global history that people will always, always talk about. Pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Merry Christmas, Andrew. And tonight, our second guest is Colonel Bob Stewart, MP for Beckenham. Uh, good evening, sir. H Hello, Chris. Good evening. We've just had Andrew Hamilton on, uh, whose grandfather was at Christmas Truce at Plug Street in 
1914. And this Christmas special tonight is all about Christmas truths. But obviously, we're also talking about uh, the link through Shawncliffe. Obviously, how we got involved in it was from originally Belgium Tourist Office, helping us to uh, create an interpretation for them in Plug Street. But then obviously, we were involved with the Peace Collective, who are the guys from the farm. Uh, Peter Hooten, who's the lead singer, and wrote the song all together now about Christmas truce in 1990. He's going to be following you on. When we did the launch in the House of Commons to the press, and you very kindly stood up and you spoke to the audience about the Christmas truce you, in the 20th century you actually organised, and I know that silenced the room. I, I think that, for me, brought it home that it still happens. And I just wanted you to talk about that moment and obviously what would happen nowadays on Christmas truces. I'm a civilian. I have no idea what happens in the army at Christmas time, especially on active service. So just really wanted to know more about that, sir. In December of 1992, I was the British United Nations commander based in Bosnia, but particularly my headquarters was at a place called Vitez. Now Vitez stands about 15 miles away from the front line position uh, to, to our east, although the front lines were much closer to our north. But to our east, the front lines were at a place just to the east of a large town, well, a relatively large town called Travnik. Now, Travnik was being shelled every day from a huge mountain called the Vlasic feature. The Vlasic feature was where, in 1982, I think it was 82, um, the Olympic, the Winter Olympics, did their downhill runs. Oh, and on the top of the Vlasic feature, I knew there were 60, 30 guns. Wow. Now, these wow. guns had a range. They could actually reach my camp from there, but they were specifically being targeted on the town of Travnik. And at least, well, normally, one or two people were killed every day. I deter decided that... I was going to try and stop that over the Christmas period. The town of Travnik was held jointly by the Bosnian Muslim army and the Bosnian Croat army. And to the east of Travnik, up near a place called Turbe, the Bosnian Serb army was. So their front line was there, but the front line then went up to the top of the Vlasic feature, which was, we're talking 3,000 feet directly up, straight up, a massive mountain. Mm -hmm. Then at the top, not quite on the brim, but a bit back from it, at a place called Palenik, there was these guns. Now, those guns, in my view, were the ones that were being fired on Travnik. So my mission, if you like, was to try and stop the shooting that was taking place onto Travnik from the Bosnian Serb army. Now, I had easy access to the Bosnian Muslim army. I had pretty good access to the Bosnian Croat army. My problem was getting to the Bosnian Serb army. Now, I had previous to this, about six weeks before, led and crossed the lines between the Bosnian Croats and Bosnian Muslim Federation and the Bosnian Serb army. There was about a half a mile strip. And I had walked across no man's land and I had walked across with a foot patrol. And we'd, on one of the occasions, we discovered a Bosnian Serb army soldier, huge, big bloke. He was, it was difficult to get him out of the snow because, you know, he was iced in. And when we pulled him, because you don't just lift the body because it could be booby trap, we pulled him with a rope. The smell was not great either. Anyway, we put his body on a stretcher and took him 
the rest of the way through no man's land always conscious that we were we could actually we found a couple of um wires which were booby traps um you know, wires with a you know big explosive at the end by using sticks held in front of us we got through and i said i brought this man's body back for you although i didn't do it for this reason it did prove good intent it did prove to the bosnian serb army that i cared yeah and that I, I was demonstrating that I was meant to be neutral. And I was trying to, by the time we're talking about round about the 16th of December, 17th, 18th, I can't remember exactly. I was trying to get a ceasefire. That was my mission. No one had given me that mission. No one gave me any bloody mission in Bosnia. I made it all up myself. The only instruction I had was from the prime minister. When I asked him what he wanted me to do in Bosnia, he said, can you do a good job? Well, it's hardly what the military um, get, you know, as a mission. Uh, well, I did the best I could. By going across and talking to the Bosnian Serb army, they, these were professionals. They weren't quite the same caliber as the ex-schoolmaster um, commander of the Bosnian Muslims at, uh, in um, Torbay, in the edge of Torbay. They weren't the same types as General or Colonel uh, Tihimir Blaskic of the Bosnian Croat army. When I arrived at my first time over there, the commander of the Bosnian Serb army kept me waiting. Now this is unusual. Um, it was unusual insofar as normally people had huge respect for the British army. And I thought this isn't going to be easy. Eventually he walked out, stumped up to me. He was a tall, big man and he said, yeah, what do you want? Now, that is not the way that these guys normally talk to a warlord, which is effectively what I was, because I then, one of the lessons I learned, I have to behave like a warlord. For example, on one occasion, I smashed through the front of the mafia's headquarters with one of my tanks to get them to do something that, you know, I would make, make it difficult for them, which I did. So behaving like a warlord, they respected you if you were powerful. One of the lessons I learned too, do not say something and not do it. Do it. When I said I'd bring a body back when I was over there and I did bring a body back, I gave my word. Now, but this guy, when he came out, I went back to see him and then I'm trying to organize a ceasefire and the commander's there, Bosnian Serb um, commander. He looked like a professional JNA, Yugoslav National Army, the same one that had said to me earlier, another occasion what the hell do you want i said well i want this time i want a ceasefire over christmas because your guns are firing on travnik oh no they're not he said we don't fire on travnik it's just full of civilians i said no okay fine you you don't you don't do it but who who might do that do you think the uh, muslims will fire on their own town or the croats would but you know he said well, it's not us I said, okay, fine. I don't mind who it is. I just want it stopped. And I want it stopped over the Christmas period. And I want it stopped until the Orthodox New Year, which is the 6th of January. Because I said, people are dying. So he said, well, why should I stop when you, the UN, are terrorizing from the air? And I said, no, I'm not. I'm not terrorizing you from the air. He said, there are aircraft flying over here, American aircraft. I said, well, um, I don't think that's right. As I understand it, they are not allowed to fly below 20,000 feet. Well, sod me, if right at that moment, in the valley below me, two F-16s didn't thunder up the valley 
<laughs> and I could see the bloody pilots there on the same level as me. Le, you know, <laughs> he said, see what I mean? You lie. I said, well, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. You know, you've got me there. I can't deny those are American aircraft. They're meant to be at 20,000 feet. Yes. He's carrying up the valleys. Um, and I was looking down at them, really. I was probably higher than them. They were, you know, there's nothing I could do. I mean, so I, I was banged to rights. I said, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, they haven't actually attacked you, have they? You know, he said, no, but they could. He said, the first aircraft strikes by any of my troops, I will fire on your camp in Vitesse with my guns. And I knew damn well, D-30 had a range of nearly up to 20,000 meters, you know, could do it. So I said, well, I'm, I'm very sorry, but um, you are right. He says, there's no way I could deny that. The bloody aircraft were flying below me. I said, all I could do, the only way I could actually take it was just to fall around with laughter, which is what I did. I just fell around laughing. I said, we are not meant to be doing that. Anyway, I said, look, I would really like civilians not to be killed over Christmas. He said, so would I. I said, well, there we're in agreement. He said, well, okay, I'll think about it, but um, I'll have to ask for permission to do that. Anyway, around about four days later, I took my Land Rover and took a couple of warriors and I drove to the front lines. And when I got there, well, someone opened fire at me. I was on the television actually, when a shot went whizzing over my head. And I said, well, I'm hoping to arrange a ceasefire. And then I heard bang and a bloody round went straight over my head. But I remember saying, but as you see, something's going wrong here. <laughs> you know, luckily I didn't jump out of my skin. I mean, God knows why, not because I was brave, more like I'm just a slow reactor. Now, in order to do that, I used every single trick in the book. Firstly, I'd been on the local radio station that morning and said I was going to cross the lines that day. Now, they listen to local radio there. It yeah. was an extremely good way of communicating to everyone. And I said, can you tell everyone that I'm coming across? Colonel Stewart, the UN commander, is crossing the lines today. And then we crossed two minefields. We moved the mines. I moved the mines with my driver and my interpreter and a couple. I didn't go with many people. And I spoke to the commander there, I can't remember his name, he was a brigadier. And he said, we, we will not shoot. We will stop the war from today until the 6th of January. Now, there was some intermittent firing. Ceasefires are never perfect. Most definitely not in Bosnia. There will be firing, you know, you've got to remember that most of these guys weren't a disciplined army. They were, you know, normal people by before the war and and they hadn't really had much military training anyway i got across it was agreed i went back to the two people that were easy to control the bosnian croats and the bosnian muslims and said there will be no the bosnian serbs have said they will not be fighting during christmas and to my amazement not one shell landed on travnik for that entire period so that's my story and that's what actually happened uh, over the Christmas period, 1992 to 93. Of course, after 6th of January, all hell broke loose again. But, um, you know, for a short period of time, there was a ceasefire. Wow, what a story. I'm, I'm absolutely stunned by that. 
I remember seeing it on TV, on the BBC and on ITV, and I remember a lot of the events. I remember them interviewing, maybe it might have been you, but the mortars started dropping and people were huddling under warriors and unbelievable. For me, it was, I wasn't courageous. No, God, no. I was just doing my job. And by that, I was sustained in doing that job by the fact that I was the commander. I couldn't let myself down. I couldn't let my men down. I couldn't let the country down. Remember, I had over 102 newspaper and television and radio correspondence directly attributed to me by the bloody Ministry of Defence. 102. Actually, their presence ensured I didn't wimp out. And I remember walking towards the first minefield in the snow. You could see the mines. They were on the road, you know, on the snow. And suddenly, there were two soldiers either side of me. And I said to them, what the hell are you guys doing here? And they said, we're not letting you go on your own, sir. I said, but I don't want you here. They said, we're not letting you go. Now, courage, who has courage? Me, who's sustained by my position and can't let myself or the regiment or the army or the, the country down, or these two young kids, aged 18 or 19, either side of me, who had no such sustainment, who did it, did what they did, and they did it with raw courage. They weren't the commander. They didn't actually have to let anyone down. They were just themselves, and yet they were there. Andrew Hamilton talks about his grandfather, who was the officer on duty that night, that he felt afterwards his grandfather was passed over because he was there at the Christmas truce and it was impromptu it wasn't was there any fallout about what you achieved but I would have thought a different viewpoint what you because you were no, you no were, I don't think well <laughs> as it took me an hour and a half to even get a message to the Minister of Defence on a daily basis and how you know my commander the UN commander it took me about a similar time to get a message or get through to them I didn't really matter, and specifically, specifically, no one gave a damn, frankly. I was, no one gave me direction. And in the only hell I got was probably around Srebrenica when we evacuated from the town of Srebrenica in April 1993, some 2,000 women and children and some wounded soldiers. And I got into trouble for that. Because one, I was way out of area. The UN commander had asked me to go there, but he was French. So I asked whether I was to obey the instructions of the UN commander, General Philip Morial, or the wishes of the Minister of Defence. And I reminded them that I was actually under operational control. There's a difference between command and operational control, but I was under operational control of Philip Morial. When I got into Srebrenica, as we went in, something like 20 people were killed from Bosnian Serb shellfire as we went in. And when I realized that we had to evacuate women and children from Srebrenica, and remember this is some two years plus before the massacres that occurred when Srebrenica fell in July. July 1995 was when Srebrenica occurred, and we're talking about 
April 1993. I sent a message to London. It was difficult for me to get through, but I sent a message via my headquarters who I could speak to, who then communicated to London. And fundamentally, I realised that I was in shite, really. But I decided that I couldn't do nothing. So I spoke to General Philip Morial and I said, General, we need helicopters to come in here. I said, the British have refused to allow helicopters to come in. They say it's too risky. And I remember he touched his chest like this. He said, my friend, the honor of France is at stake. You will have those helicopters. Meanwhile, don't think I'm not a sneaky bastard. <laughs> I had briefed one of the three public relations officers that I had been allocated by the army to brief Kate Aidy on the quiet that it was believed that Colonel Stewart had asked for British helicopters and had been roundly rejected by the Ministry of Defence. So he'd asked for French helicopters and the first French helicopters were landing in Srebrenica at that moment. This went out on the six o'clock news. The British reversed their decision by seven o'clock. <laughs> and I kissed goodbye to what up to that stage <laughs> had been a glorious military career full of promise. <laughs> as everyone knows, the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, there we are. That's another kind of a ceasefire. It wasn't a ceasefire. It was a removal. We took out about 2,000 people who would otherwise undoubtedly have either been wounded, disappeared, died. Well, I, I just, you know, as I said, amazing story, but I wanted to hear that story from you because, again, this podcast is, is telling what happened in 1914. I wanted it juxtapositioned against yours. But, yeah, it, it's, a, it's an interesting story, as we said to Andrew, about how, at the moment, on the internet, during this time of COVID, the biggest meme at the moment going around is a supposed photograph of the Christmas truce in 1914 with people with it written on, you think you've got it tough this Christmas, remember 1914. And it is yeah. interesting how, how that moment in history has been dug up December 2020 to say, you know, stiff up a bit, be British, we can get through this. Um, you know, it, it, that's another story. But Bob, thank you so much for coming on tonight. It's been absolutely fascinating to listen to. And thank you so much for telling that story. No yeah, problem. I'd, I'd like to say thank you because uh, I think uh, I was meant to come in whenever I could to uh, sort of try and put some World War One perspective on it. It was just blew me away with what you said. So, um, and I can't compare it in that respect. Uh, I think you're very eloquent in how you presented that today. So, um, yeah. Thank you. Take okay. care. Bye then. And our final guest on this Christmas special podcast is Peter Hooten of The Farm, who wrote that song all together now. Peter, good evening. How are you? Merry Christmas. Yeah, I'm doing fine. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, The Farm came out of the time of Manchester and, and was it round about? Cool Britannia and, and Britpop and it was a bit before that actually, and we never had. Uh, we were just an indie band playing 
you know, small venues around the country, you know, and not really getting anywhere, you know. Um, and it was about 1989, about Christmas, 89, one of my mates said to me, you know, how come the farm are successful? You've got a big following in Liverpool and everywhere you go, there's chaos at the concerts and that. And I just said economics, down to money, basically. That's what I thought anyway. So he said, oh, I, know, I know a fellow who might lend you some money, you know. And that's how it all started. So tell us about how in that time of the 90s, you write that song. Where did, where did that come from? Yeah, well, I'd actually written it in the early 80s, not long after um, John Lennon had died, I don't think, a few months after he died, because it affect, I, I was really affected by that. And I was like moping around the house, you know, I was almost in a lockdown myself, you know. And uh, it was like a spiritual lockdown almost. So I started writing my thoughts on paper, which became early songs, really. But I've never been, I never thought at a certain age, I want to be a songwriter. It was just a traumatic experience, like Lennon getting shot, that made me try and express some thoughts, you know. And then I started reading. I was a history. I was, I was trained as a history teacher. I did my uh, postgraduate certificate in education and history and PE. But um, I never went into teaching. I went into the youth service. Um, I read a lot of history books, you know, and I kept on coming across the story of uh, the Christmas truce and I didn't think it had been publicized enough and I, I got a bit angry reading about it because you start to realize that you know there's fraternization in no man's land the soldiers of both sides realized they had a lot in common really you know they had a lot more in common than they probably had with the people who were, who were um, ordering them around you know and uh, I got a bit angry uh, reading some of the um, transcripts and the fact that they were almost forced to go back to fighting, you know. And so I wrote this song called No Man's Land. And it was six verses, actually. And it, it went into Kitchener having to address the House of Commons and all that. Probably too many verses for a pop song, you know. So it wasn't until 1990 when we uh, hooked up with Suggs from Madness. He produced it, you see, and he said, he said to me, I think you need to drop three of the verses, you know. It goes into the House of Commons and Lord Kitchener and speeches and, you know, people saying, why isn't there any activity on the Western Front? So I cut, cut the three verses down. Uh, so it was now three verses, you know, and he was right because it didn't lose its impact, but it lost a lot of its meandering, you know. I mean, I, I, I love the song. I always, from yeah, it's just one of those, I love the video. I thought the video yeah. was brilliantly done. And obviously, I, both my grandfathers, like all of us, fought in World War One, and I thought that was a, a tribute to them because, yeah. you know, my grandfather came out of Manchester. My other grandfather came from a tiny hill farm yeah. as, a, as a, you know, labourer from Malvern Upton Pond Seven. And I actually think it, it told their story in, yeah. in so well. I think, you know, I mean, there was so many acts of humanity. There's a, there's a brilliant book called uh, Meeting the Enemy. I don't know if you've read it, but it's about fraternization between the two sides during the, you know, the whole war. But obviously, I think the Christmas truce was the one where it was a spontaneous one because um, the hierarchy of the army, its politicians said it'll be over by Christmas, you know. And I think there was a mindset there. 
And you've got to remember that they were regular soldiers, the first batch of soldiers were actual regular soldiers. So they were experienced, and, but they probably weren't experienced in that type of warfare because it was, they were fighting really a 19th century war, weren't they? With 20th century um, armaments. So it was a real, probably shock to people that they were entrenched in, you know, in a trench system on the Western Front. So I think all sorts of emotions must have gone through, through, their, um, through their minds, you know. And I think the very fact that they started, the Germans, I think, uh, according to reports, started singing Silent Night first on, on their side and Christmas Eve. And that was reciprocated, you know. And I, I think pe- people, a lot of the letters back saying people thought it was a bit of a trap maybe and people didn't know how to take it. But I think the camaraderie then between uh, the two um, com- sets of combatants, you know, it, it came across. So then on Christmas Day, day there's all these letters, you know, uh, which is primary evidence for historians of what happened on the day, you know. Peter, you've got a, uh, a, an amazing story being told in the lyrics that you wrote. So how did you go about setting those to music? Because the tune itself, I mean, we love it, obviously, but the tune itself yeah. is, is, is very catchy. So how did you then go about setting that to music? Well, our guitarist, Steve Grimes, was, um, he was a big fan of Packardell's Canon, which is what it's based on. A lot of pop mm-hmm. music. There's a lot of uh, pop songs in the 60s were based upon Packardell's Canon. Um, it's the chord sequence and uh, he said I think you should try and get your no man's land lyrics and put them to he called it the, the wall advert because it used to be an advert on the telly for British wool believe it or not <laughs> <laughs> so he said why don't you put you know those no man land lyrics and he'd been asking me to do this for two or three years you know and I never got round to doing it but with the house music explosion in 1990 everything was slowed down. You see, No Man's Land was a pretty fast song, almost like the jam, you know. Mm. Um, whereas when we uh, started using drum loops and hip hop loops, uh, we slowed the tempo down. So that, that enabled it to fit perfectly with the lyrics, you know, and uh, that's how it came about. And Suggs was uh, instrumental in getting, you know, the drop out in the beginning of the chorus where everything drops out, all the instruments. Mm-hmm. So it's almost it's me singing with the backing, uh, or you know the organ, the Packabell's cannon, yeah, and that drops out, and that was Suggs's idea, you know, uh, to drop everything out and then come back in. I see when we were involved um, with the Belgium Tourist Board to start writing a sort of interpretive narrative for yeah. events we held that Christmas um, in 2014, and obviously uh, the lady in charge, um, Francois Sheepers said to me, we want to get that song played there at the memorial, at the commemoration. Yeah. yeah. And so that's, I mean, we've been talking about that for some time, and that's when I started bugging the hell out of you. I'm so sorry for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> mate. <laughs> I've never said well, it, but I'm, it I'm sorry. You. It wasn't really you. It was Premier League was doing it to me. <laughs> and really, you know, to tell you the truth, um, you know, I, I don't think the original can be, I think it's, it's, it's of its time. Mm. Suggs produced it and it's a moment in time. And, um, you know, it was only because the Premier League kept on pestering. We want the kids involved and we have this truce tournament. 
And it was somebody who set up the Truce Tournament because they were inspired by the song, you know. Yeah. So um, the Premier League were very, very keen on it. The, you know, when it was presented to radio, a lot of the producers were saying, well, we prefer the original, you know. And, uh, I think also we were just unlucky. And um, I know from our side, when it came out, um, our little team hit, everyone they could we rattled yeah. as many cages we punched you know we're a small tiny charity and we punched that over the, that time with a, a, a girl who dedicated herself to doing all our media stuff she worked yeah. herself into it and just can't thank her enough and then and then we had a obviously then sir bob came wading in with you know uh ebola single yeah. and yeah. we got I think the, the charity, charity record market, absolutely, I think people went against it. And I think they went against Bob. And I think they went against anything else that was coming out that year. Yeah. I think also the, um, it's like every organisation. The mm. Premier League, who did the Truce Tournament, which is basically the kids, you know, weren't really, you know, the actual Premier League teams, you know, weren't really on board either. They might have done the odd tweet or whatever. But they didn't really get behind it, you know. I think um, they were they were telling us that you know the whole machinery of the Premier League would come at, burst into action, but it never did. You know. No, they didn't have they they having done a few and now working alongside some massive charities. Yeah. Difference being is they do not have the people in place to sell the story and care. They build it up, right, ship it out, yeah. next one, ship it out. Yeah, we yeah. know roughly percentage-wise how much we're going to raise off here, how much we're And it's a numbers game for them. But to you and me, yeah. it was it personal. It so much to us, yeah. It was so was a, personal. Yeah, there were people involved in the Premier League and the, on the academy side of it. The person who came up with the idea, he was totally committed to it. You know? Yeah. It's the 30th anniversary of Altogether Now. Is it? Yeah, it's, it was out in the charts this time 30 years ago. I'm I'm really pleased that you're doing it. That's an absolute bonus. Do you know, for a fanboy from the 80s, you made my day because I got to I got to, to, to meet the guys from the Proclaimers and I saw them in their first tour to Australia when they came over. Yeah, yeah. And that talking about that, you know, I grew up with the clash and so on, sitting in on the pavement with Mick Jones yeah, yeah, and having a coffee with Holly from Frankie yeah, and yeah. then meeting. <laughs> it was great. Just... Yeah, the Proclaimers, you know, came down at their own expense for the day and went yeah. back to Scotland, you know. Um, you know, that was great for them doing that. Absolutely brilliant. Then, as you say, Engelbert turns up. Legend. Uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of good people involved in it, you know. I, I actually... You know, I quite like what you know how it was treated. Clean Bandit were on it, weren't they? I know. Who were the biggest stars at that time? You know. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I mean, we're all we're very proud of the song. You know, it's think um, it means different things to different people. The number of people who tweet us and say, "Oh, we didn't realise it was about the First World War. We thought yeah. it was just a party song." You know, yeah. so you can listen to it on different levels. You know, and. If it encourages people to read about what happened, great, fantastic. You know. I think from the trust perspective as well, we're constantly, even now, constantly mentioning 
um, when we do events, and Chris will confirm this, when we do events, mm -hmm. we are always talking about the altogether now um, uh, yeah. single and uh, and and what, and what you've done is uh, for on our behalf as well. So it's mm -hmm. uh, we're still pushing that message out yeah. there. So again, that legacy is still there. You know the statue. There's a statue in Liverpool. Yeah, it, yeah uh, I'm going to ask is, what happened to that. Which is in the. Um, it's only a. It's only. Um, it's not a bronze statue. The bronze one, is in uh, Belgium. As you, you know, um, the one in the uh, bombed out church we call it, St Luke's Church in Liverpool, which was bombed in the Second World War. Uh, that's like um, a reconstruction, but it's. It's not a permanent one. They're trying to raise money at the moment mm. for a, a permanent bronze one, you know, which I think would be fantastic. I uh, think it would. The, the church is a, is a symbol of what had happened in the Second World War, you know, and then you've got the, um, the two soldiers shaking hands just in front of it. You know? Yeah. I think it'd be a, a brilliant tourist attraction as well, you know. I, th I, think, it's a, I think it's great. I mean, obviously... Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's still one of those moments. We've done loads of amazing events and projects with the Trust over time. I mean, we haven't achieved our goal, which is to get a permanent place at Shonkiff. We're still fighting for that. Yeah. We're still, still doing. But at the same time, we're still doing projects to talk about our shared history, um, which is, and everything we do is, you, you suddenly realise that the, 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 the tentacles that go through each and every one of us. We're obviously, Shawcliffe is famous for Napoleonic history. Yeah. And obviously a hundred years before the truce, Battle of Waterloo, yeah. Belgium, the Germans are standing next to us and yeah. fighting the French. A hundred years later, the French are next to us and fighting the Germans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, as a history teacher, trying to get that across the students to say, your preconceptions of who's a good guy and who is a bad guy, yeah. they're not black and white. No, of course they're not. Of course they're not. And I think one of the things about the truth that I, I've, I've read is that, you know, depending on which uh, regiments were on the front, the Saxons were very, you know, um, very much like the English, really, in many respects. And, and I had a, had, a, had a feeling that, you know, we shouldn't be fighting anyway, you know. Whereas the um, um, other regiments didn't have that view, you know. So it depended on the makeup of certain regiments. I think on both sides, whether the truce was uh, happened or not, you know. Yeah, I, thought that I, thought, was an, I think that's an interesting part of history as well, you know. Yeah. I think, um, I don't know of any Prussian regiment. I think the Prussian regiments were a bit more, shall we say, aggressive. So yeah, they, were, they weren't happy with it, really. Yeah. But yeah, you're quite right to say that um, the, uh, it did depend on where you were and who you were with as to yeah. what happened or not. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, what is planned? Obviously, 2020 has been, you know, obviously touring's been difficult for you guys. Not what are you planning for 2021? <laughs> well, uh, we had a we had a load of festivals lined up 2020. They've all just been put back to 2021. You know, we had a couple of gigs, few gigs with Madness. In no. forests, you know, they do in the yeah. forest commission do gigs. We had a few with madness, and they've been put back to uh, May, June. So hopefully they can happen. You know, who knows what's going to happen? Nobody really knows, do they? I think it's made people realise what the important things in life are. You know, 
you know, I think people have appreciated. I think it's a bit different now because when the first lockdown happened in the spring, you know, everyone became nature lovers, didn't they? We were all on walks, we were all going out. You could hear birdsong everywhere. It was fantastic. Yeah. But now in the depths of winter, you know, on the longest day. It's uh, been like being with uh, Sean Bean in the uh, Game of Thrones, up <laughs> not Yeah, but, you know, when you think of it, when, when, you know, my dad says to me, my dad's in his 90s, you know, and he, he was evacuated in the Second World War. And he just, uh, you know, he's in, he's in siege mentality. You know, he's like, he's, you know, he's, oh, well, it's not too bad, is it? You know, you, at least you're not getting evacuated. You know, and you've got to put it in perspective. Yeah. You know, we were young, uh, 1914. You know, you, you know, there was, you possibly going to uh, the Western Front, weren't you? Yeah. I'm yeah, sure yeah, we yeah. can put up with not going to the pub for a few months, you know. The fact that, you know, everyone's moaning about this situation just shows how, complacent we've become about yeah. what's important you know and i think uh, you just got to think to back to those uh, people in the trenches and what they have to put up with you know it's you know it's, uh, this is it this is it and, and you you have been fantastic and i've been so wanting to talk to you and catch up and obviously from 2014 yeah you just say first of all thank you i know it didn't achieve what we wanted to achieve but yeah. it, but for us um, it did because yeah. we get to tell an amazing story about yeah. how a group of people from Liverpool try to help us. Yeah. As I said, at Sean Cliff, we it's it, we're still finding to save the heritage, and uh, you know I'd like to thank everybody who who stepped up and onto that song and did, did it, and thank you for choosing us. I'd just like to say again, thank yeah. you, thank you, thank you for doing that. Um, you're always a special place in our hearts for you guys. Whenever you guys are coming down anywhere near Kent, yeah. I'd love to show you around. Yeah, we'd love to come one day. Because it's, we've still got our First World War trenches, we've got Second World War stuff. Yeah. Guys from the Warwicks who were there at the Christmas truce actually came back to Shawncliffe mm. and did training in the 1920s. And that guy you might have heard of, his, his name was Monty. It's still all about local heritage, local history, yeah. telling the stories, connecting people across mm. the country and around the world yeah. uh, with a shared narrative, mm. which, again, I can't, I think is pers personally perfectly encapsulated in your song. Okay, thanks for having me on. Thanks for You're very, me. very welcome. Okay, Cheers. have a good Christmas. Thanks very much. Bye. Cheers, 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 Peter. Bye. Well, guys, uh, what can I say? amazing stories tonight absolutely amazing stories i don't know if they make me feel more Christmassy. they certainly make me think and um i'm so pleased to hear what they had to say obviously because we we you know i was personally involved in 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 part of this and and talking to these guys tonight have been amazing what are your thoughts i, I think it's been absolutely fantastic yeah like you say, the stories have been told. Uh, some of them just leave you speechless, really. So, uh, but it's uh, yeah, that, it's to a certain extent it's Christmassy, um, but in a different sort of uh, with a different meaning, different context, I suppose. But uh, yeah, it's been been great tonight. Been really good. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd echo that. Um, you know, obviously the, uh, the the big myth about the football match. Dare I say, uh, over the years we have been misinformed. 
probably a yes. bad pun to make. That was a dead joke, that one, wasn't it? Uh, but uh, no, look, I, 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 think to, I, I think to unravel um, that myth, obviously Bob's story, I, I'm, I'm still catching my breath um, mm. uh, 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 over that one. Uh, and let's not forget, we're going, we're going to end tonight um, with the great song, um, the All Together Now uh, song, which, you know, again, we can't forget. I know, I know you say it didn't go to number one, but it actually did. It reached number one in the UK Independent Singles Breakers chart. So it went yeah. to number one. So we can say that we're going to end our show tonight with a number one song. Yeah, and I, I, I've heard back from quite a few um, military, military personnel who say they've either used it and used to play it when they were coming off deployment. Um, they used, you know, it's one of their, it's one of their songs. Um, and I'd personally like to dedicate it to our armed forces and armed forces across the Commonwealth as well, especially our friends in Canada. I'd like to dedicate to them, them, uh, and their families at, at this time or not who are on active duty. I'm civilian at home. You know, I get to see my wife and my daughter and friends and family and get to talk to them. Um, we still remember the guys in that trench in 1914. Think about what Bob said and uh, yeah, I just want to wish them and everybody's helped trust this year. I wish everybody uh, a very Merry Christmas, especially the trustees who've done so much work, especially our key volunteers. You know who you are. I can't do it without you. Thank you so much. And obviously, James and Steve, thank you for no doing this and wishing you guys a Merry Christmas. There is. And thank you. you very much, Chris. And a Merry Christmas to you, mate. And a Merry Christmas to everybody out there. James. Take it easy, matey. <laughs> another shrimp, <laughs> another, shrimp yeah, another, on the another, another shrimp on the barbie for Christmas. Exactly. No, look. Uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. Have a safe and happy one. Uh, and we'll see you on our next podcast. Stay safe. See ya.
Let's go.